This is the story of how Australia and the world are facing transformational change at a rapid pace. From shifts in geopolitics, economic uncertainty, climate change, disruptions to democracy, rapid leaps and bounds in technology, and social unrest. We've seen a lot happen in the global economy in the past few years. It has forced nation states to reevaluate nearly all aspects of how they function, especially as economic and social change that used to take decades now occurs in much tighter timeframes. There are certainly many challenges we face, but there are also great opportunities for those who are able to develop solutions and be better prepared to navigate a fast-changing world. So in the near future, how will we trade, how will we work, rest and play? What's the future of work, the future of finance and the future of living itself? I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to The Great Transformation. They say knowledge is power, and lifting everyone through education solves everyone's problems and ultimately societies. But are our schools up to the challenge? What about vocational schools and universities? Are we reskilling our workforce for the jobs and careers of the future? How will AI and ChatGPT change everything? Will the digital opportunity transform Australian higher education? I'll speak to an expert who will help us paint the picture. I'm joined now by Professor Roy Green, Special Innovation Advisor at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Roy Green, welcome to The Great Transformation. Thank you, Tim. Well, they say knowledge is power and education is the underpinning of all knowledge. Are our education institutions ready to skill our workforces of the future? Well, I guess um, if that were the case, we wouldn't be having a major review right now of our higher education system uh, called the Accord, uh, led by Mary O'Kane. Um, we can go through uh, our entire education system from schools to universities, but let's start at the university end, uh, which I'm most familiar with. Um, we have a, a system which sort of works because uh, we have um, developed universities to such a point that um, almost 40% of our population have bachelor's degrees. And uh, this is um, a great tribute to uh, the previous governments which enabled the expansion of our uh, universities. Um, but it has come at a cost uh, because in the process um, we have lost a lot of the uh, more important elements of universities that we uh, enjoyed in the past, in particular the um, emphasis on basic research. Uh, a lot of the uh, current discussion is about the growth of more applied research and research commercialization. Um, we are not able to fund the level of basic research that we would really need to have enough research to commercialise as a country. Um, what research we do uh, undertake 
is now funded in a way that is probably not sustainable uh, because part of the expansion of universities uh, was to ensure that they were able to generate their own funds. Um, initially, when, if we look back to the Whitlam period, um, universities were made free and this would enable all parts of the community to join. Then under the Hawke-Keating government, uh, we uh, had a decision made that universities should not necessarily be free because the individuals going to university had certain benefits that would otherwise be cross-subsidised by the rest of the community. So a very clever system was put into place, the HEX system, the higher education contribution, which was uh, a conditional or contingent loan system. And when you reached a certain threshold uh, of salary, you paid back the fee that the universities were set. Um, and then we had a reduction in conjunction with that of public funding for universities. Uh, there's always a lot of contention about where we sit globally in terms of the public funding of education, but if we look at the public funding of higher education per student, uh, we're well down now in the OECD list, but we're still able to fund universities quite well. The reason for that is because we expanded our international student um, market as we call it, um, a terrible term to use for education, but that's what it is. We did have, of course, because of COVID and the borders closing, a drop-off in international students, but they're now coming back. But do you think digital education will impact the international student market? If you can study at home, you can study at Harvard or Cambridge or a university in Australia. Do you think that will have an impact or do you think people do want to go to the campus and to the country itself for various other reasons. Yeah, well, it is going to have an impact. It has had an impact. Um, but then um, a few years ago, there were these things called MOOCs, the massive open online courses, which were going to replace teaching on a campus almost altogether. They haven't. All you, all you would have is people doing tutoring while most of the students were watching these uh, MOOCs presented by 10 or 12 of the top universities in the world. No one else needed to hire a lecturer. Uh, well, that, of course, that didn't, didn't happen. happen. Mm. Um, that was very overblown. Um, various people got on a bandwagon about it. But um, that uh, didn't mean that we weren't moving very much in the direction of digital based education. We have the micro-credentials that's expanded. Exactly. So there has been a big emphasis on packaged sort of micro-credentials for those who don't want to do an entire degree or want to build up a degree in a modular way. Hmm. And that's increased the flexibility of the offerings. Uh, but it won't replace campus education because um, a lot of those international students and certainly domestic ones uh, do want to have the campus experience, and that's very much still the purpose of a university. Not everyone wants to or has to be a professor of economics or a lawyer or a doctor, but mm. we need plumbers, we need electricians. Mm. Um, as I used to say, you, you can't 
send the job of your local plumber to Bangalore or mm. or somewhere mm. else. Mm. Do you think we've missed a trick with the, the excellent TAFE sector we used to have in Australia? Look, uh, we've more than missed a trick. Uh, we have a broken VET system in Australia. It uh, can partly, be repaired. It can be repaired, but it's going to require a lot of resources and a lot of effort and a lot of care and understanding on the part of governments, both state and federal, because... Uh, whereas higher education is largely controlled by the Commonwealth, the states still control much of the TAFE VET system. And the biggest mistake, uh, as it has been in many areas of our economic life, has been to introduce this market contestability into the VET sector, whereupon private providers would come in and they creamed off all the low capital intensive areas of uh, TAFE education, the easy ones, the cheap ones, leaving TAFE to pick up the tab for the more expensive areas, which they couldn't do because they didn't have the resources to do so. And so the TAFE sector began to deteriorate. And we have the position that we have now, where we're not producing the mechanics, the plumbers, the welders, all the people we need to, if we're going to grow and rebuild and revive our manufacturing industry how will we do it without these people, let alone all the trades uh, requirements uh, in, in the massive construction uh, task that we have in front of us, for, for especially for residential? So um, here we are, and we have um, a TAFE system, uh, VT system generally, that is no longer fit for purpose, that needs a lot of work done. We have a higher education system, which is precariously... Um, based on, to some extent anyway, very large extent, on international student fees. Uh, we have a gap in the middle that used to be occupied by uh, CAEs and we have no connections between any of these different parts. So the potential task and the potential outcome of all of this could be a much greater integration of those different elements so that... Um, if we use our public resources wisely, we can devise a system that works for everyone, for those who want to go on a technical, practical route, for those in a university who want need more depth of knowledge. Not Let's not pretend universities are just providers of professional skills uh, for professions that could be actually undertaken elsewhere, or, or the preparation could be undertaken elsewhere. Let's make sure universities are, in some sense, what they were, these centres of higher learning. Um, and then for those who wish to combine that higher learning track with practical skills, can we have more integrated pathways between those two? Um, good model, of course, is the German system uh, with um, the interconnected pathways um, through their equivalent of the polytechnics, the CAs, the, as they call them, the Hochschulers and the universities. Um, and um, there's no shame in being in manufacturing industry in Germany. It certainly isn't. It's not a second-class um, um, career. It's right at the top in and people's the, esteem. The challenge to, I guess, reform the school system so they can fit into all those paths so you don't have everyone just trying to get into university and no one being able to 
finish school and move through a trade system. Yeah, we have um, a lot of opportunity with the universities as well, which have also, whereas previously we had technical schools and we had other types of schools, um, that was seen as a bit of a class divide, but maybe we just invent those technical streams and we run them through the schools with maker spaces. Um, we have um, at UTS, as, as you know, um, a very strong uh, student entrepreneurship program. With the startups. The UTS startups. But the students coming out of schools, they think because we've so disparaged and diminished manufacturing, they think a startup is is an app on, on the yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah, so it could, uh, be, it could or, be manufacturing or farming. Or, um, and mm, um, mm. no one has Mining. asked the question, what would you like to make? Yes. That's Can right. we create maker spaces? Well, we have, we're have. we starting to do that with our proto So we can, we can make things again. We can make things again, and we can enable those students to not only have the skills but also the culture and the aspiration to join a manufacturing country of manufacturing economy um, which has now been so hollowed out that it will require a, a massive effort to get back to that point not with the industries of the past we don't want to recreate them but the industries and technologies of the future it was st- not using language like rust belt or satanic mills part of our language is anti-manufacturing isn't it well that's right uh, and, and there are many parts of the world who've been through this um, and um, since you mentioned Rust Belt, a good example is Massachusetts in the US which um, in the 1980s was booming with the so-called Wang economy making computer hardware, then all of that shifted to to Taiwan and other places uh, and they became the Rust Belt Uh, there was no manufacturing left the old manufacturer had already gone Uh, so where do they go from there? Uh, and it took, they were up to 15% unemployment at one point. And what they did was reinvent their entire economy, um, led by the great universities in that area, not just MIT and, and Harvard, but a number of mm. really Boston, fantastic Boston College, universities yeah. mm. um, who effectively, and within a, a very clever industrial policy framework, reinvented the economy around biosciences and um, and IT and um, other related technologies, and look where they are. Yeah, of course, very well. yeah. and uh, this is the advantage of the cluster model, the innovation district model. Wherever you are, uh, provided you um, you can pick winners, you pick the not necessarily the companies themselves, but the areas of technology and competitive advantage where you can succeed. Uh, you can turn yourself into something successful. And um, Silicon Valley is the other obvious example in the US, but uh, the Biden administration's industry policies are saying to other parts of of the US, even though you you may have little to play with uh, in terms of your areas of competitive advantage, if you've got them, just build on them. Uh, So Pittsburgh did that very well, led by Carnegie Mellon. Um, Cleveland, less so. There's some interesting comparisons that are often made between these two cities, not very far apart in the different policies and trajectories that they undertook. 
And then, of course, in the UK around Cambridge, so-called Silicon Fen in um, in Germany, around Munich and Stuttgart, uh, with their strong manufacturing backgrounds, all of these places have done something interesting. Even um, rural locations, one in particular I always think of in this context, is a place no one has ever heard of in Germany near the Black Forest called Schweningen, which used to be the clockmaking area of Germany in the 18th, 19th centuries. And then they wondered what to do next. The clockmaking had pretty much finished. So um, they now, when you visit them, you see incredible prosperity, less than 2% unemployment, um, but they're not really near any major infrastructure. They don't have a, an airport. Um, but what they do have are all of these little workshops in the little villages and towns uh, that are making world-class surgical instruments. When you think of AI and chat GBT they're talking about now, what challenge is that for these education institutions in the digital economy? We're still grappling, and we will be <laughs> for some time, with these new developments. Um, the ideal, of course, is that um, we can use chat GPT as we did with calculators, which were also you know, banned from the classroom for a while. Um, we can u- make use of these new technologies to enhance our creativity rather than to substitute for it. But we do face these apocalyptic visions of, of um, humanity's design code being hacked by chat GPT and there's nothing else for us to do but follow their instructions. Uh, I don't see it that way. I think there are going to be controls and balances and with every new technology that comes our way since the Industrial Revolution, we've always responded with some kind of regulatory environment that has enabled the technology to serve us. Not always very successfully, but the regulatory framework we put in place will determine how much human agency we are able to exercise within a very new context of technology. Professor Roy Green, thank you for being on The Great Transformation. Thank you, Tim. Well, that's it for our look at how we would learn on The Great Transformation. Thanks to our guests for helping us, and let us hope we can provide the right skills for the jobs and careers of the future. A special thanks to our knowledge partners at Baker McKenzie for making this series possible. I'm Tim Harcourt, and this is The Great Transformation. 